1: Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of Black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. Uh, they are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please again, support Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of Black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. I'm Visha's wife, and remember, when you name a dog Janet or Timothy, you are dragging humanity down just a little bit. Badge Epic Ensemble is a remarkable musical force based in Toronto, Ontario. Led in spirit and word and deed by the gifted multi-instrumentalist and producer Max Turnbull, Badge recently released an excellent new album called Self Help, which features guest vocals by the likes of Meg Remy of U.S. Girls, Jennifer Castle, Dorothea Pass, and James Bailey, among others. Self Help is now for sale via telephone explosion, Records And Max and I connected recently for an extensive chat about this band and where they came from. Local politics, the definition of dank, the internet's never-ending present, meditation and self-help, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control. And Massey Hall's Concert Film Series Live at MasseyHall.com, where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free, including performances by past podcast guests like Jennifer Castle, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 582nd episode of Creative Control, featuring the beautiful and talented Max Turnbull of Badge Epic Ensemble, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Max. How's it going? Hi, Vish. I'm, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. Thanks for asking. Uh, uh, as always, uh, I, I think I know where you are, but I always like to ask my guests, my guests, you know, where in the world they are. Mm-hmm. Where in the world are you today, Max?
2: Uh, I'm in Etobicoke, Ontario, at home, um, in my music room.
1: Oh, nice. How are things going in Etobicoke these days, uh, given everything that's happening? As we're speaking, it is uh, it is November 5th. So I don't know if you've been following the uh, American election. I, I feel like everything else in my information processing life has been put on hold as I try to yeah. suss out what's going on there. Is, is that the case for you?
2: Um, yeah, to to a bit of a degree. I will say about Etobicoke, it's a little quieter in this neighborhood since Doug Ford passed, uh, who was a bit of a canary in the coal mine for the stuff happening down south. So You mean Rob a Ford? Bit. Say it again. Rob Ford passed. Did Doug Sorry. Ford die? For, for, that was a Freudian <laughs> slip right there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Isn't it weird? We're getting a little harsh uh, in our goodwill towards people. I've seen it on the on the social media. People hoping other people get sick and die, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a weird... But maybe, is it just... I don't know how to frame it. Is it somewhat justified to have these feelings?
2: Oh, man. That's a question that's above... <laughs> My pay grade, for sure. Um, I think that there's a kind of a crudity in in politics that, um, you know, seems to call for that kind of uh, interactive mode that's very cynical. And I think part of that, too, is just letting off some steam. So anything that takes place online, I just heavily discount from, uh, you know, what happens sort of in front of one's senses in person.
1: Yeah, I think that, but when people are jerks, it does, uh, and if you don't feel like you're a jerk and someone is just obviously a jerk, it turns you into a bit of a jerk towards them is basically where I'm coming from. You kind of, my wife, my wife has said it a few times, like, you know, and I'm like, oh, I think, where's Mike Pence been? Maybe he got the thing. And she'll be like, you know, kind of under her breath, but she'll say, good. I'm like, geez, is that really what you want? You want people to... Is that where we're at? But then at the same time you think of all the human life and suffering that have been caused by these individuals. And yeah, this this whole conversation has taken a very dark tone. Yeah. And I'm worried that the authorities might be listening. So all this to say, Etobicoke is quiet since Rob Ford has has left. And and, and it's is it quiet otherwise in Toronto because of the pandemic or is is it business as usual per se?
2: It's it seemed um Relative, you know, not nearly as quiet as March and April, where driving on the Gardner Expressway um, felt sort of like being in a zombie movie or something, you know, seeing the messaging that was happening from municipal authorities. Um, just, it's such an odd experience being like an urban den- denizen and um, being told on uh, public messaging and billboards to stay at home you know i think that was sort of a bizarre experience but uh yes, yeah you know from the spring through summer it felt kind of back back to uh hustling and bustling as as a city may and um i i, I find that there hasn't really uh, been that much diminishment despite uh the numbers crawling back up um in how active the city feels. I mean, that's just like on a walking down the street, getting groceries kind of analysis, not uh, so much to do with like any cultural city stuff, which um, feels a little dormant, especially for someone who doesn't participate in too much of the zoom streaming stuff. Cause I know a lot of the cultural stuff has just migrated there, but um, I just don't have that much of an affinity for that mode of, of um, conveying music and, other things that I would normally be participating in, uh, in a city. So,
1: well, you and I have done a few interviews over the past seven years, and I've also, uh, interviewed, uh, your wife, Meg Remy. And, yep. uh, one of the things that always sticks out for me is that in every instance that we've spoken, it has come up that, uh, you don't have the internet at home at, at your home. Is that still the case? Do you not have uh, Wi-Fi or anything like that?
2: Um, it's very specifically true to say we don't have Wi-Fi. It would be untrue to say that we don't have access to the internet at home. Um, you know, I have a, a I have an iPhone. I'm speaking to you on an iPhone, so I, you know, I partake. Have a data of that. plan of some kind. Yeah, exactly. We have a data okay. plan and able to tether to the phone to like check email and this kind of thing, but. We found just it's kind of a nice balance having access to the Internet whenever we need it, but not so much that you kind of spiral into like a YouTube wormhole at 1 a.m. Um, even just like this, I find that there's a kind of a Netflixification of of everything where just all kind of cultural curation has been um, migrated to uh, the Internet. So just having to make things a little more difficult, like having to u- make use of the library for reading material and getting new DVDs and stuff like that, um, just seems to keep us infused with uh, a varied perspective. So, yeah, I'm conscious that it sounds like a flex, like, oh, we don't have internet at home. It's it's not true, and um, but we do, you know, I think the sort of self-regulation thing is... Uh, is crucial and it's very difficult. So, if there is Wi-Fi at home, I, I suspect that uh, the internet consumption would would look just like anyone else's, really.
1: Well, I only bring it up. I, I appreciate what you're saying uh, saying about it being a flex because people used to say and still say, "I don't watch TV." You know, I don't. Yeah. I don't consume media. But uh, the internet thing is, I think your decision making it was always kind of admirable to me, frankly, and and vaguely like novel to know that, you know, I couldn't uh, have a a Skype conversation or or whatnot with you or Meg. I mean, every interview, I did an interview with Meg uh, about the most recent U.S. Girls record. And prior to Mm -hmm. that, every time we'd done interviews, we met in person at Jules Cafe. I think you and I, we've talked mostly either on the phone or I think you've, uh, in the past, you've gone to like your parents' house. Uh, so you could connect to the Internet. So I all this to say, like, I, I bring it up only because I think you're right to have that self-discipline to say, yeah. you know what, we don't need all that stuff. And you might be better off because for those of us who are always connected, it is a little stressful. It, it is a little stressful to try to feel like you're always not only informed, but maybe more informed than someone else. I don't know. It's it's a weird pressure we put on ourselves. And you yeah. have, in a weird way, you have kind of disconnected from that that whole manner of thinking. And I think that's, I mean, it's probably annoying to some of your friends who are trying to email you or reach you or whatever using normal, but you've got the thing. So anyway, it's probably fine. All I'm saying is behaviorally, it's good. You're probably in a healthier state, don't you think?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think so. I definitely feel that the mental health is greatly impacted by how much of the sort of internet stream we allow into our bloodstream or something like that. Um, And I think that there may well be a shift in the culture at some point where it's actually some like symptom of a privilege, you know, the degree to which you are unexposed to the internet. You know, I think Mm -hmm. we may see uh, the elite class sort of um, make use of that as a privilege, you know, not having to uh, be as reliant and dependent on internet access as someone say who is like a member of the gig economy workforce or something like that who's completely tethered to their phone all day every day so i don't know um at present i'm not a part a member of that elite class so yeah um it's more just like a sort of lifestyle and mental health decision but uh yeah self-moderation
1: well your album is called self-help which i want to get to because i feel like that's a, a pretty uh uh, interesting and, and empathetic, but probably loaded term at this point as well. But mm-hmm. I just wanted to double uh, back a little bit on what you were saying about uh, classism and Internet access, because, again, as we're speaking, it's November 5th. And as we're speaking, uh, the United States of America doesn't have a president because the race is too close. And some of the discourse around that is about, you know, a lot of people are like, how is this even close Mm -hmm. What is going on with half the country that they think the information that they trust and have been sort of given uh, is viable or something you can believe in? Do you Mm -hmm. think Internet access? I I, I don't know this to be the case because obviously conspiracy theories, QAnon, all these things are Internet based. However, there is this sort of, I'm curious because I think of you as a very thoughtful guy. I'm just curious what you think of this a lot of the kind of analysis of what's going on about the way that country is divided, and it happens in Canada as well, is that a certain populace is more informed than the other, Uh, but we're now at a point where both sides would say, no, I'm informed, my main source Mm -hmm. is blank, and that, depending on what side of the, the spectrum you're on, you'd be like, well, that, you know, the Globe and Mail is garbage. Someone else might say, oh, you know, the rebel in Canada or Breitbart is right. garbage. So so we're in this information divide. And I just, as someone who has chosen uh, purposely to try to figure out how much information <laughs> you're going to yeah. engage with by how connected you are to the internet, there's some going on there too, don't you think? Like, isn't information important uh, and accurate information important and
2: access th- to it? I think so. But I think that the most important information is that which is perceived in sort of the immediacy of your corporeal existence, like what you're looking at directly in front of your eyes, what you're hearing, you know, in the room that you're in. I think that information is the most important information. And my fear is just that um, even that sort of basic, um, humane f- sort of uh, information reception is being mediated at all times by you know, the devices and, and the, the social media and uh, whatever, you know, however you want to classify the sort of technological stuff that we're all just so hooked up to. And sure. I'm, I'm certainly yeah. a part of that. I don't see myself as above it, but I am conscious of it and try to just mediate my exposure to it. And yeah, I, I don't know. I think this sort of constant mediation of all modes of thinking um sort of precludes a thoughtfulness that uh, when engaged with we sort of are able to see people as um fellow humans and uh i don't know i just think if you spend if you had to spend a week at a a weekend at a cottage with someone who you saw through um their social media feed was like ideologically opposed to you or or your what you carry around is thinking to as your ideology. I think if you had to spend a weekend with that person, you would probably find a lot of moments of commonality and humanity in that experience, but it's sort of precluded by everyone kind of communicating through this technological, uh, way at this point.
1: Well, do you think there's a falseness to assuming that being informed and connected to the wider and broader world, uh, is going to, uh, Enable you to impact that because I, as you were speaking about immediacy and the things in front of you, I was thinking about the uh, recent interview that David Letterman conducted with Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, given your internet access, if you had a chance to watch that, <laughs> but, uh, or have any interest in watching it, but uh, there's a section where Dave, the two Daves are strolling uh, within Dave Chappelle's small community in Ohio, and he goes on a, an extended sort of Dialogue about how his father, Dave Chappelle's father, imparted within him this notion that the most important thing you can impact uh, for the greater good is your own community. Yes. Um, Is to actually affect change hyper-locally because if enough of that goes... And that is really the most important thing because if your immediate community where you live, where you dwell, is in a place that... It gets to a place where people are living harmoniously and understand each other and know each other and don't bother each other or yeah. or judge each other that can have this remarkable domino effect if every community kind of thinks of it as like I'm going we're going to be concerned about this it's not that the other things other communities around the world don't matter no but in terms of just being able to function in a healthy way you need to have a strong base uh, where you live and so is that a little bit of what you're getting at there with what you were saying? Yeah, for
2: sure. I for me personally, I think the most radical thing that I can do is try to have a radical kindness for the people that I encounter imme- immediately, whether that's my family, my friends, mm-hmm. people on the street, you know. I think it's important to keep that as a constant reminder to try to be kind to people. It's difficult cuz I, you know, the internet is so polarized and there's people who appear to be acting so monstrously on the internet um i think that's mostly a diversion from the sort of monstrous behavior of the sort of uh more elite ruling class and i think a lot of the other stuff um is a bit of a diversion from that but i tend to agree i think uh kindness within your community is the most uh important thing that you can do and i think it's the only thing you can truly control the rest is sort of like to keep you occupied um And keep you spinning your wheels and trying to impact things that really we don't have any control over. You know, I think like in the the last couple of days, everyone is checking their phones like once every 15 minutes to see if this election has been announced or something. And I I think that expenditure of energy really has no impact on that result in particular as one instance. Um, But it's certainly occupying a lot of mental energy that's just sort of uh, Being expended to little resource or purpose, in, in my opinion. I
1: just wonder if it's an illusion or not that that election will impact the greater our world, our communities. I feel like it will. I feel so that's my thing. I'm keeping tabs on it because I I don't believe that um, Joe Biden becoming president is going to have any kind of instantaneous uh, change on the way we're all living. but I also think that it's a on a symbolic level it will. I think it will dial back some of the anti-science rhetoric around this pandemic we're all enduring. I really do because I think there will be for better or for worse and often it is for the worse, we do look to that the world looks to that country to lead us. And so as a tone setter, and I do think that when you have a yeah. maniac uh, who is in charge of that country, Whatever the breed of maniac that is, there have been many maniacs in charge of that country. But when you have one that's this overt, it has a ripple effect. We all don't you feel a little stressed out that that guy's in charge? I do. I don't live there. I don't live in that country. But my a lot of like you, a lot of my friends do. Yeah. And I we're right next door, yeah. and I feel like tonally, it is enabled lying to an extent we may never like. It is basically legitimized, normalized a form of. Projection and lying and the treatment of others that I think will take decades, decades to undo. Like, you and I are at an age where I think we move past this relatively easily, but we think about my kids and the kids that are being raised in this environment. My son keeps giving me election updates. Now, between you and me, I know the information. Yeah. He's telling me old news. He doesn't know. He's not on top of this. I am. But... <laughs> <laughs> vote counts in Georgia and this and that. I know what's going on, I say to my son. Anyway, don't yeah. you think a shift there would be better for all of us? Like, just mentally, just thinking about this? Or am I, I a slave to mass media I, by even worrying about this?
2: Uh, I think a shift in that at that uh, level of politic can change the world, certainly. But the shift for me would be completely reimagining that... You know, our civic duty is to show up once a year. You know, I'm, I'm making an analog to Canada, yeah, of yeah. here. Um, and vote, and that's kind of it. And then the rest is a gamble. Um, I think that level of um, power just shouldn't exist and, and needs to be interrogated as to why we are still subject to it, despite the fact that I think there's a consensus among all political stripes yeah. that it's yeah. not working. Um, okay, yeah, it, it's so I don't I don't know I don't I don't know if my political analysis uh, <laughs> I, is exactly what people are coming to this podcast for, but um. no,
1: it is. It's absolutely why they, I mean your record is called self help. Your name has like your yeah. band's name is sort of French. You seem smart. I I, I think I, on the surface, superficially, people will see all that language and be like, oh, I'm gonna learn some things from this. <laughs> so it's gonna be enlightened and interesting. Oh, you and I. Oh, I don't a, think it's a ruse. <laughs> it's a ruse. I don't think you and I have had an on-the-record uh, conversation yet about this particular project. I know we. Um, I think the last time you were on the show, we talked about Darlene Shrug, uh, and I think you've mm-hmm. been on yeah. for some of your other work as well. Uh, first of all, yeah. uh, as you may know, I'm a big fan of of, of this uh, ensemble. What what is this ensemble? First of all, Max, tell us about it.
2: Um, well, it's a project that's sort of uh been developing slowly since I th- think late 2016 or thereabouts um something that's just sort of marinating in the background of a lot of other projects that I was involved with finding its identity and you know when that's, that's, that that's the albums that we've released so far have kind of been a a record of that uh, identity search for me personally on on the level of just being a writer and Um, having some ideas about arranging music um, and being interested in production and that kind of thing. And then I think slowly the the theme that's sort of overtaking that one is the identity of the group as a a sort of living organism of, um, at this point, seven musicians and um, a couple other engineer producers who uh, have contributed to everything that we've done, that being Steve Cholly and uh, Tony Price. Mm -hmm. And I think the story of this, latest record is that uh, this, this group has a chemistry and a sort of life force to it um, that can be captured when we're in the studio recording live music together You know, almost everything that we've released so far uh, has been almost a complete take with not too many overdubs recorded live in a studio and I think that's becoming a major part of the identity of the group um, in large part
1: so it's very much in the moment, uh, sort of uh, at least trusting those moments in terms of that live off the the floor feel. How much of this is uh, improvisation? How much of this is uh, uh, com- uh, you know more composition? Can you speak to that?
2: On my part, it's very little improvisation. Uh, I think what's maybe interesting or unique about the structure of the group is that I am, technically speaking, a very naive musician, but I have sort of grand ideas about composition. And so I try to communicate those ideas through my sort of naive playing and then have hired people who are really crack musicians to flesh that out. Um, so there are people in the group who do improvise quite a bit. Uh, Alia O'Brien, our flautist, being one. Ed Squires, our percussionist, being another. You know, from take to take, you'll get very different... Um, Sort of interpretations, uh, from both of them. And then other people like Jay Anderson, the drummer and myself are kind of playing fairly arranged parts. Um, right. And that's generally with, with the last album, Self Help, how a lot of the material was developed was I would come up with some, uh, you know, maybe three to four little motifs musically that I thought, let's string these into a song, come up with a rough arrangement with Jay so that the, the, The kicks and the snares were falling in the right place, so to speak. And then over the course of a weekend, on the Saturday, we'd get everyone in the same room, run through uh, the ideas, and come up with a, a cohesive structure and arrangement together, and then the next day record it. So it's less that it's very improvised and more that it's spontaneous, I would say, is perhaps a better descriptor of it
1: spontaneous yeah. okay right
2: so so you assemble assembled
1: a, a group of players and you trust them but there is a foundational aspect an arrangement to the composition it's just they can kind of uh, you know improvise or change things they can change if they need to change if they feel like uh, they want to do something different than they did the last take they go for it
2: yeah i mean i think i'm trying to conceive of my role as the band leader and primary writer um i say primary because chris bazant our guitar player also contributes some melodies and things like that um i sort of see my position as the band leader is that sort of like homer gif where he's receding back into the bush a little bit um, <laughs> where i have certain ideas about uh the moods that i want to evoke with the music and once i feel that that has sort of been instilled in uh, um the environment where we're creating a new song um then I try to recede a little bit and allow people to to do their their thing
1: you you had mentioned earlier that you know this was a, a project that came to being and has uh, kind of found its own place in your own i guess uh you know creative trajectory can you speak about that evolution a little bit in terms of self help like the things you've just described and the the modes of operating and the mm-hmm the processes, uh, how does that sort of work? Uh, and those approaches, how does that differ from maybe when it first began? Can you speak to that? I'm just curious about that. Cause when you've, when you have an exciting band like this one, I know, uh, you know, you might have a couple of gatherings and it'll seem good, but then you'll just hit your stride, yeah. um, together and you'll be like, Oh, okay, no, this is magical. So yeah. I guess I'm just curious about that, that first discovery of that magical feeling and mm-hmm. how that's translated into the work on self-help. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, I think at the beginning of this thing I sort of had a conception of wanting to do music that was really moody. Mood being the sort of emphasis of what I wanted to pursue. So having less of a kind of like, less of the ideological agenda of of rock and roll, you know, which I think is very keen is sort of like a propagandistic form, like the imagery is such a huge part of it and The lyrical content is like very ideological, whereas other forms of music like jazz and film music, which are sort of primary inspirations for this project are a lot more open-ended and just, uh, you kind of set some energy in motion and and people receive it in a way that's sort of personal, you know, like it, it can sound dark or it can sound happy, but beyond that people attribute, uh, The minutia of emotion in a in in more of a particularized way. So that was the conception of it from the beginning. Um what I wanted to do. And very slowly I started acquiring musicians, literally one by one. You know, it started as just Jay Anderson and I. And it was that for like close to a year. And then it became Jay and my brother in law Josh on bass, and it was that for a couple months. And then I, I always knew I wanted flute. I always knew flute was gonna be the lead instrument. And the first record was kind of with that in mind, like, let's make a flute record that's really moody. And the chemistry was apparent from the very first practice where everyone who's on that first record was in a a jam space uh, in the east end of Toronto. And, you know, they we added, I think Ed was last, the percussionist on congas. And Jay was the only person who, who knew Ed in the band before anyone else, but Ed came in, characteristically cracked a beer, sat down with his congas, and we basically just played the first record as it sounds. Um, oh! And I just knew from that moment, wow, this is something special. There's a there's a chemistry here um, that's evocative, and uh, I think with that first record, I was kind of hitting my stride with as an instrumental composer. And then the second record, The Evolution, has been maybe less of the emphasis of my being the band leader and the writer and the this and the that, and more just being in a studio and letting the experience of what we sound like as seven individuals in a room, as we added uh, Karen Ng on saxophone with this latest record, being the seventh member, what we sound like in a room together. And that's really the story of, of this latest record.
1: Now, you've invoked jazz there, and to my reckoning, jazz is, uh, it can be almost anything. Uh, And I know, I think, based on previous conversations we've had, based on uh, how much of your music I've uh, followed over, God, the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years, whatever it's been, 15 years, I can't Mm -hmm. remember. Uh, You are someone that... um, defies easy categorization though i know that uh, in terms of genres or whatnot styles yeah uh and i wonder if there's something about this project in particular that that sort of scratches that hard to categorize itch like you've created something like i'm looking at when i think of the the sort of uh, biographical info about the record mm-hmm. uh there's terms like uh, in terms of genre signifiers soul funk film music yeah. uh you know <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, jazz uh, jazz funk and mysticism is one combines jazz funk and mysticism so a lot of like what the hell does that mean kind of stuff yeah. like I know people have conceptions of these things and they're usually just whatever rose to the sort of mainstream masses mm-hmm. but for those of us who deep dig a bit deeper maybe I like oh well jazz can be anything funk can be anything does that is that important to you on some level artistically to to create things that are challenging to yourself uh, maybe challenge Uh, convention and norms or is that just happenstance does that just happen the way you express yourself
2: yeah i think more of the latter i'm definitely like with my work i'm not seeking to set new challenges for myself i just have had a compulsion to make music you know for almost 20 years now and what comes out is what comes out it's not i don't try to consciously mediate oh now i'm gonna do this i think a lot of it comes from my Deep abiding passion for music and sound, which is something that I've had since I was about twelve years old. And I'm an obsessive listener and amateur historian of, you know, certain strains of music. And I just get really animated by uh, encountering stuff that makes me feel something vivid emotionally uh, or or imaginistically. I don't know if that's a word, but in my imagination, something uh, is evoked by in- the encounter with creative, imaginative music. And that's just basically my goal to to make music that is creative, imaginative, vivid, you know, dank, you know, something that occupies space in your in your mind and becomes almost like a, a 3D object. So I don't know that I'm consciously trying to it's not like I'm making a gumbo and being like, ooh, a little bit of soul, a little bit of funk, ooh, let's put a little bit of banjo, you know, like...
1: No, I, I, I don't think you are. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, uh, I understand where you're coming from with it. It's just, it's just interesting. I mean, I, I have noticed over the last 10, 15 years, there's this explosion in genre signifiers. Uh, yeah. I mean, you just use the word, you just use the term dank which yeah. has sort of emerged... I don't mean to sound like an old man here. Uh, I, I don't want to sound like an old, out-of-touch linguistics professor, but you use the term dank, and that's something that's sort of new. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't really heard it... Is that a musical application as well? Like, I've heard it applied for, you know, dank memes or dank. Yeah. Like, what does that even mean? But actually, let me ask you that, young young man. What does <laughs> dank mean, Max? What do you think that means?
2: I think it comes about trying to diagnose the production of media more so than the content of it you know everything is so highly aestheticized um in how we have cataloged all of human expression so minutely on the internet that just about everything possesses an aesthetic of its own and for me like that means sort of like the detritus of the uh the commercial music industry. In other words, stuff that didn't make it to that echelon, but was sort of like cast by the wayside in the course of the music industry sort of being turned over. So that's like people who are aspiring to uh, be commercial musicians and may not have made it or were kind of on a lower tier financially or economically speaking in that world. But um, the result is like Recordings that have a degraded fidelity or just like a moody yeah. or warped or ambient quality that doesn't have to do with the songwriting, the chords and the words necessarily, but has to do with the atmosphere. Um, so that's how I employ that word is to try and describe the fact that what I'm trying to do with these records sort of from the production perspective is create something that feels like lived in and woozy and like, it's a vibe that was in the room that just happened to be captured, and the sort of magic of like capturing spontaneity, capturing like seven, eight, nine—if you include the engineers and producers—human beings in a building on this day. This is the this is the gunk that uh, we scraped off the floor. I don't know if that that's a, a good descriptor, but.
1: I appreciate that, and I appreciate that this was a, a contemporary record, but it's funny that as we talk about categorization, what do you make a kind of temporal pigeonholing? Because uh, <laughs> there are there are instances where people will say, oh, you know, that ensemble is a, a jazz funk ensemble, hmm. but the other people will weirdly say, oh, and I might have done this once, by the way, and I apologize if I did, oh, that's a very 1970s sort of sound. What the hell does that mean? The whole decade? How can it sound like a whole decade? Do you remember what happened in the 70s? Yeah. So what do you make of that? Like, I feel like, because I, I do feel like we're in a zone. I, ironically, we started this conversation about, you know, internet consumption, mm-hmm. and I do think that there are children of the internet who have access to every sound, every thing yeah. that has been ever made. And so that informs their creative process in a way that appeals to me because as a young person, I also was like, I'm going to find the jazz records, I'm going to find the punk records, I'm going to find yeah. the hip hop records and dig deep into all of this stuff. But the internet has really blown that out of the water. Like, I mean, everyone is sort of meant to be a generalist and have all of that information inspire them or influence what they, how they live, what they make. So... Is this potentially, <laughs> is, is this ensemble potentially arriving at a time that's sort of where, where time is sort of flat, a flat circle, and we're not, yeah. are we over that whole, Like that's a 1970s sounding, but are we over that stuff by
2: now? Um, I think we're, we're going to have to be uh, because the internet has precluded us from finding new sort of aesthetic palettes to communicate with. You know, I think that yeah. there was a sort of technological function where having reduced access to knowing about the entirety of the history of music, not being able to, to unpack that history, like over the course of one night using Wikipedia, AllMusic, LimeWire, Spotify, <laughs> what have you, made it so that people made more idiosyncratic choices, uh, yeah. and were informed sort of by the limited sort of, uh, technological evolution. That was happening. Oh, this keyboard just came out. Let's see what it, it sounds like combined with what's on the radio this week. You know, what's on the radio this week? What what radio? Everyone is a walking radio station of their own. Yeah. With Spotify and everything like that. So I just think we are at a place where we are precluded from having things that signify uh, a contemporary flavor beyond the fact that every band sounds like a replica of you know, a six month period from 30 years ago from different countries, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's right. That That is, that is the signifier of now. So if we're going to engage with culture, that's happening contemporaneously, I think we have to get over this uh, obsession that I think a lot of critics uh, have with diagnosing exactly that six month period that you happen to be inspired by. And let's yeah. find the artists that, okay. Yeah. They're inspired by a certain production aesthetic that you can diagnose to a a time and place that happened many years ago. But who among the the contemporary crop of artists, um, are using that as a a jumping off point, having that as a a aesthetic thing to convey content that is contemporary? And that's what I'm trying, trying to, um, make happen with the badge thing um, and I think that there's sort of symbiosis with the the members uh, other than myself Mm -hmm. and badge Mm -hmm. um, where yeah we all love music from the 70s. It would be a complete lie to say that uh, we're not inspired by that mode of production but I think what I'm trying to communicate personally is like the idiosyncrasy of my writer's voice. I don't think that the melodies and the chords that I'm coming up with and stringing together and those sequences, I don't think you can uh, attribute them to something that has already happened. Similarly with the, the lyrics, like I'm writing about my experience in the lyrical content as a person living in 2020. Yeah. I think that there's a lot that's very contemporary about music which signifies past modes of production. And with music, you know, it's difficult because it's not just the content, which could be communicated with sheet music of here's the words, here's the melodies, here's the chords. Like music also conveys an atmosphere, um, like I was saying earlier, uh, the sort of production of it. So it, it can't, um, I think like literature may have it a little bit more easily because it's more of an interpretive form. So people aren't saying, oh, well, the novel, well, the novel hasn't evolved in a hundred years. I mean, I'm sure certain strains of literary criticism have been saying that. But sure. um, I think music is a form that uh, conveys it's 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 a little more literal in a certain sense, in, in that it's conveying substance, but it's also conveying this sort of um, temporal temporal quality that comes along with the substance. Well,
1: it does because you 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 in, you invoke novels, and yes, there have been advancements in the presentation of literary works and the way they feel in your hands or the way they look on your screens Mm -hmm. music is very much or it has been I think until recently uh it can be very connected to the time it was captured um and 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 in a way that I don't know that other art forms I mean I think there are many art forms that are similar film certainly uh a film from the 70s or 80s or 90s will look different because Mm -hmm. technology has advanced but like Music is among the prime examples where, like, if you follow a legacy artist, you know that their records from the 80s are going to sound a little different because technology changed. Yeah. And you know their records from this, they're going to sound different than the records from the 70s. Like a 10-year, 75 and 85, totally, same artist, totally different sound. And it's a lot to do with sort of stuff they have no control over. I booked the studio. The studio, I found out they... Replaced all their gear, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and now the thing that I made ten years ago sounds a bit different. I do feel like with the democratization of technology, we're going to have a harder time saying that Max Turnbull had a bad 2020s, uh, because you can tell by the fidelity of the of the record he he made. You know, I thought yeah. the way I'm 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 sort of referencing you know people like neil young or bob dylan where you're like yeah <laughs> they had kind of a, a rough time during that one period where technology was in the middle of figuring yeah. itself out but now like with home recording and and you know so much diy stuff and studios also going back and forth between do i just go pro tools do i have go all analog it's sort of weird so when i say time is kind of fucked up in terms of music that's the kind of stuff that i think is informing that it's not even the band you have yeah. and the music you're making it's the way it was captured and the way you know as you may know I've ordered all your records and so I'm listening to them on vinyl and that's going to affect my memory of it and my mm-hmm. you know my experience with it as well I'm not I can't handle the like this is music I don't want to just you know relegate to some mp3 I want to yeah. to get the record and put it on so all of this to say and this is a lot of stuff I don't know where I'm going with it but there's a lot about time that I think is sort of informing badge. Um, and that's all I'm getting at. I, I don't have a handle. I don't, I'm going to work on this essay for a master's <laughs> thesis at some point. But do you see where I'm coming from? There's just a lot of factors that, that kind of define where a record like self help is going to live in terms of its legacy, in terms of its history. Like in 20 years, am I going to put on a badge record and be like, well, that was clearly recorded in 1972. Is that possible? Is that something I might do?
2: I don't know. I kind of, I feel that we're sort of <laughs> evolving past how we've, we've been consuming music for yeah. the last, well, I don't know. It's, it would be disingenuous to say 40 years because the way people can consume music has been different over each of those decades. But we kind of have this conception that if a record is great, you know, it won't get its due. It's, it's like true kind of contextualizing due till 20 years hence, say. Or certain records that come out now that are mainstream and are acclaimed uh, will get taken down a couple notch in 20 years. I think we're kind of likely yeah. to evolve past that to a degree just because I think the place that music occupies in the culture is really shifting. Yeah. And I I think, I don't know, I feel almost like the cultural aura that you had, that you could acquire by being in a band, say in... 20, 30 years ago is now like if you have a podcast and your podcast <laughs> is sort of projecting some kind of like ideology or something like that. Or like well, it's a, a contemporary,
1: you're, you're, it's a, yeah, it's a contemporary feeling it's expressing like we're, we're, which we're is, talking about the here and now. And I think music does that too. Like I, I think reading the back of a John Coltrane record and knowing when and where it was made because of my knowledge of history or, or mm-hmm. whatever, like that's going to inform, Oh, well clearly that was in the air. When these guys got together and went into a room together like that. And in your case, like I don't exactly know when this record was made, but me, that's just how I process music a little bit. Oh, they made it right after such and such happened. That Mm -hmm. must have been an interesting vibe in the room. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. I mean, I do agree that there has been a sort of stagnation creatively in a lot of music. And we can diagnose it from the fact that people do sound precisely like, you know, they're in a post punk band from Manchester in 1979. You know, like, yeah. th- there's just sort of a, an approach to one's musical aesthetic that's very mi- minute and particular. I, I agree with that. Um, but I think there, on the other, other uh, end of it, because music is interpretive, um, yeah. there's been a stagnation in how people who are listening to it are receiving that information and i think on both ends it's like the internet once again is sort of mediating uh these experiences it's mediating the experience of trying to be a creator um mm. in in that it's forcing us to digest way more music of a way of a much greater diversity than other creators in previous eras had to and then as a listener too or as a critic um you're you're consuming it in such a way that's less like emotionally interpretive and i think more to do with con- textualizing and being able to say oh well they like this or this is related to that and being able to playlist it uh appropriately or something like that so i just think the way that we're interacting with music both as creators and consumers is is shifting and will continue to shift and i think that's uh it's kind of a technological process at this point which i find frustrating because i think music is among the most humane of substances that we can create and consume.
1: No, I I agree with you, and I don't want to dive, dive too much deeper down this hole, but as you were speaking, I was just thinking about this. Tell me what you make of this, and then I do want to ask you about the lyrics. You mentioned sort of uh, music is interpretive, and you had invoked your own lyric writing, so I want to ask about the voices that have now found their way into the badge uh, mm-hmm. universe, because my recollection was that I guess it was never always only instrumental, but I I do in my head, I'm like, oh, that's Max's instrumental band. And then a voice comes on. I'm like, no, wait, that's not true. Anyway, I want to get to that in a moment. But one thing you said there sparked some thoughts in me about the internet and technology on a different level in that there was a time in the not-so-distant past where we were all, um, our parents, probably more than we, but maybe me, we were living our lives. And if something came on the radio... Or was on the TV, and you didn't capture it. It was gone. Mm-hmm. You didn't. You didn't relive the fashion over and over again. You evolved, and you didn't really even notice it. You just changed and changed and changed because it wasn't. You weren't staring at your past five years ago always in your face. Like it just wasn't accessible. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted to get at here is because we live in an on-demand culture now, where you don't miss anything. I feel like. I don't know, like has this maybe stifled our ability to kind of evolve a little bit because we are inundated or have the ability anyway to access our most recent past, our glory days. (laughs) You know, I mean, as a kid who grew up in the 90s and used to tape everything off the TV that I thought was interesting, now I just YouTube it and it's there and anyone can do that. And mm-hmm. so I guess I just wonder temporally what this means if we're just constantly have this accessible archive yeah. to historical artifacts that aren't even that substantial. Like it's one thing or maybe that's arguable, too. Like it's cool for me to be able to be like Sonic Youth, David Letterman, 1994 on YouTube and yeah. get it. That's cool. But I also am like. As a kid, I had to be that person. And how much, most other how kids much cooler like would it me?
2: be if you were channel surfing one night and you found that that was on and you stumbled across it just you know, spontaneously? I think it would yeah. mean that much more to you than having the ability to see it on command.
1: That's what I mean. I feel like the on-demand aspect of this has made us... You see it driving. I do anyway. I see it in the way people behave. There's a kind of impatience. If I don't get something now... I get everything now. I get everything I want now. I don't have to Mm -hmm. wait for anything. And I do think that's sort of fucking with our concept of time. As I'm speaking to you, we're in the midst of a pandemic where time has mostly stopped. So (laughs) (laughs) I I just have been thinking a lot about time lately. And I just want to lay that on you, too, because I feel like there's something going on there uh, that we maybe you and I can't really speak to, but I'm sure our parents can. Oh, yeah. Something happened. It was done. We moved on you guys, <laughs> yeah. you can do a full deep, you can spend your afternoon being like, oh, I'm interested in, uh, you know, the, the weather report. Well, there's your day. I'm going to learn all about the weather report and watch all of their live footage. And I'm going to yeah. learn all about them. And then you're just in this weather report zone. And on the one hand, I think that's cool. On the other, I'm like, how does that impact us moving forward? So yeah. I don't even have a question here. I just an observation.
2: I think um, if you were to like sort of, Monitor what it was like to listen to the radio, you know, from 1940 to 1990, say, you would find it really kind of embodying that famous Heraclitus quote, you can't step into the the same river twice. Yeah. Yeah. Where now I think the internet is actually providing this sort of eerie quality where you can step into the same river twice. And that has (laughs) created this sort of weird... Cultural stagnation, which is why I think it's important to think more about the substance of music, because I think there's a lot of people who are recreating old music and uh, including the aesthetic and the substance. But I think that there are people who are recreating certain textures, but are doing it in a way that incorporates substance that's contemporary. So I think that's, yeah. as listeners, it's important to make that distinction. And I think critics could possibly do a better job of diagnosing that in, in certain instances. Um, and then I think the other key to it is just all of us need to really moderate how much we are willing to have our lives be mediated by the internet because I think you're right. It plays tricks with our perception of time. And time is all that well, we really just, possess. So, y- y- Yeah. I just feel like if everything is...
1: If everything that used to be frozen in history was sort of deemed to be, you know, necessary... I don't know. I'm, I'm on... This is a new spitball theory that i have not really... I haven't really figured it out. I just... As we were talking, it just occurred to me. But, like, we are in a weird zone where everything is... Everything is sort of historical in that it's captured. Yeah. And it sort of is given this importance that some of it shouldn't have. Like, my son is obsessed with watching videos of people play Minecraft. Mm-hmm. uh he's just obsessed with it and yeah. it's just guys screaming as they're you're watching them play the game instead of playing the game he says he learns from it and he does i know he does but yeah i mean and he learns how to play the game but <laughs> just like there's parts of me that i'm like i'm not a luddite i like technology i like the internet yeah but it is just weird it, it's just weird and it's sort of fucking with our sense of time and 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 place really like that's what i mean music yeah I think we grab. I think you probably appreciate a, mu- a, a record from the sixties or seventies because of that fact alone. Oh, they made this forty, yeah. fifty years ago, and in the midst of something that was going on. I am sure that informs how you even consume those records, right?
2: Yeah, I I think just part of it is the sort of instant history that you are talking about. I don't know. I think part of the historical process should be sort of. Uh, working through things, giving them the time and space to evolve whereas now everything is immediately documented immediately posted and we have this illusion that it's been worked through, you know? I think we see yes. this with the, yeah. the news cycle where like it seems like we've had 60 of the biggest news stories just consecutively in the last like nine months and yet we can't remember the ones that happened in March, April, May, June, July, you know? Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. Because we have this instant historical documentation process that doesn't allow for things to kind of unfold in something that uh, has more of an affinity for how humans uh, process time. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I think we are outsmarting ourselves and <laughs> maybe living diminished lives as a result of uh, how technologically entwined we are. I, I realize I didn't really answer your last question, but that was just more no more musings on I, the on the nature and history of time.
1: Yeah, no, I, I don't know. If, I don't even remember what my question was. Sorry, I, I they were vague uh, temporal rants. Yeah, I went on as though I was arguing with Doc Brown about his DeLorean and telling him he should <laughs> put it away. It was weird, but anyway, no, I I appreciate the the uh, response and engagement with this this stuff. Now, I did want to ask about uh, the voices and the incorporation of voices. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, in, in badge. So is, am I right? Did it start out as, I don't know if I'm right because as I recall, there were voice, there have been voices the whole time on certain
2: pieces, right? Yeah. So this is like our third, we did a record, uh, a 12 inch and a, and then self help is the second record. I guess the thing in between is sort of an EP, although it's uh, almost as long as the first record. Um, and everything has had vocals, but the first two, only had one vocal featuring track. And um, so, you know, that made up two minutes of the running time of a half-hour thing, whereas this record has three vocal featuring songs. And, um, yeah, the, the vocals and the lyrics, I think, just occupy a little bit more space than they have on our prior releases. Okay,
1: so what what is it about... Because, uh, as I recall, uh, in, in, there'd be like a long instrumental piece and then there would be like a kind of not as many vocals as you would like if a a piece was like eight minutes like you said there'd be a little bit of vocals what what does that say about what you're trying to convey there why why the incorporation of the voice but also the Mm -hmm. minimization of the voice on some level what does that mean
2: um i think i was trying to explore a form where the vocal appearances could sort of have a similar profile to like a a jazz soloist on a song, you know, yeah, they're yeah, there, yeah. but, uh, they're in and out a little bit. And when they're there, they shine and it's a feature. And then they kind of get out of the way and, and let the, the music sort of communicate to the listener. Um, I think that was kind of my idea conceptually about it. Okay. Um, when okay. I say get out of the way, I don't mean to demean any of them because we just have just an embarrassment of riches as far as the people who sang on this album. They're all, so yeah
1: speaking of which speaking of which can you can you kind of outline who's on this record and, and if you want to highlight anyone else who you've worked with in the past I'm happy to hear that too what can you talk about that
2: yeah so we have James Bailey re-returning f- to collaborate with us um, he we did a great song called undressed in solitude on uh, the first record uh, which was sort of a highlight of the, the catalog I think so that was sort of a no-brainer to to uh, see if he would come back into the studio and then meg uh of us girls my wife uh sings on one song a duet with dorothea paz who's uh a tremendous singer songwriter from toronto who um was sort of in the last wave of us girls um you know we were supposed to go on tour in uh end of march you can probably guess how that turned out but uh yeah yeah we did some work together um And uh, I've been mixing her album too. So just someone who I was in the studio with a whole bunch and who's kind of got a voice like a synthesizer, you know, she is very expressive and you can sort of like plug in the coordinates and it comes out exact. Um, She's just a remarkable singer. Um, So having Meg and her on one song was kind of fun because Meg is uh, also quite capable as a singer, but she's so uh, character oriented with her, her vocal approach. So I liked the sort of contrast of their styles um, for the one song, Sing a Silent Gospel, that they they share. Uh, and then um, Jennifer Castle, you know, was the first person whom I wanted to collaborate with, who was sort of outside of uh, the circle of people that I had uh, worked with musically before. Um, I thought it might be a long shot, uh, but, you know, we're friendly, a lot of mutual friends, and have hung out uh, at concerts and stuff in the past, and... I'm a huge fan of her work and her, her music, her voice, her aura, just everything about her. So, me too. If I can, might say, me as well. Anyone who knows anything about music in Canada, um, in a, on a contemporary level, basically has her among their favorite singers and songwriters. I think um, she's yeah, it's true. Just so tremendous. So deeply, deeply humbling for me to uh, reach out to her and, and have that be have some interest reciprocated there.
1: So you had said earlier that, you know, as a lyric writer, uh, you just, you'd mentioned that you've been writing lyrics. So are you conceiving of the lyrics for these singers or are they bringing in their own uh, uh, ideas?
2: Um, I wrote the lyrics for the album. Uh, James, the process with the song that James was on um, was that I gave him the track, the instrumental, and he uh, did a scratch vocal where he just kind of, came up with whatever was coming to mind and mostly just was uh improvising melodies and um from i i took that and wrote words to uh his syncopation and uh his melodic ideas so um he co-wrote that song in that respect uh the other songs i wrote the melodies as well as as the lyrics um and sort of cast uh the singers where i felt um their voices would would shine
1: that's pretty fun that's cool I, I, I'm, I'm glad you got the opportunity to work with so many great people uh, in, in that regard that must be fun on some level too I've never I'm trying to think it must be I've talked to lots of people who do this what is it like to write a song and then give it to someone else to sing I mean I know that sounds probably kind of silly but I assume you kind of sung the song to yourself as you wrote the <laughs> lyrics and then you're handing it over to someone else like what is it like to have someone interpret your words in such a way
2: It's very easy when the people are leagues and leagues better than you at this activity. I find it very easy and thrilling to um, make something that would be warbled in an off-kilter way by me completely come to life and be this stunning, beautiful creation. Um, I think that comes back a little bit to like this band is just me sort of acknowledging where exactly is my skill set in music. And I discovered over doing a lot of projects that my skill is as a writer and as a lyricist to a degree and really primarily as a producer. Um, so let me do those things and do them really well and then <laughs> give the keys to people who are very, very skilled and creative um, artists in their, in their own respect. So uh, I don't know. It's just a blessing to have people who are so good at playing music and so good at singing um, deliver stuff which has its genesis in my imagination and then is transformed um, by their interpretation.
1: Now, do you have any perspective on the the lyrics you have conceived of for this record in terms of maybe uh, potential themes? Or is there anything about what you wrote that took a different sort of twist when you heard how people were kind of phrasing what you what you wrote and and maybe attacking the songs on an emotive a level uh can yeah. you speak to those things i guess i'm asking you know what what do these songs mean in a you yeah. know in a sense but I, I want to try to get at it from both uh your intent as a lyricist maybe and uh and then also yeah what you made of what they did to what, you, what your your guest vocalist sort of did yeah. to the songs if you will
2: um i guess yeah between this record and the last one um I became a meditator. Um, and I think that was probably the biggest influence on the, the lyric writing process. I think a, common, a commonality between all of the songs that have lyrics is that they are um, expressing things to do with a sort of meditative state of mind and expressing a desire to move consciousness in such a way where one can be put in touch with a feeling of boundlessness and... Uh, mm sort of removing the highly individualized uh, sense of oneself as being this very rigid commodity. Um, And uh, yeah, just being inspired by that process and the process of trying to move one's consciousness, um, have a looser sort of state of mind where it concerns uh, one's temporality or corporality. Um, Hmm. And then as far as people singing that stuff, it's, it's interesting, you know, because you have these studio experiences where you're not communicating to people what I just communicated to you. You're just saying, well, here's the lyrics, here's the melodies and whatever (laughs) your, your rapport is as friends or collaborators. Um, and then they, they interpret these things without having to be explicit about what the meaning is. Um, and that's so much a part of what I'm trying to do is just grant people the leeway to interpret my conception of of, of the moods that, I'm, that I'd like to evoke is um, and that we'd like to evoke as a group. So, yeah, I think that I'm so pleased with all of the the vocal contributions. Um, I, I don't know if I have, like, tremendous insights other than, than just feeling really lucky about the people who sang and how vividly those songs came to life. Um and just, you know, I have a curiosity about what those words meant to those people, particularly in the moment they were singing them. But uh, that's something that's left for me to speculate on.
1: I, I'm gathering that in sort of being inspired by your interest in meditation that the title itself, self-help, maybe speaks to that, this notion of just being sort of taking care of yourself, self-care, if you will. Is that is that fair or is that too heavy-handed?
2: Um, I, maybe, uh, I think like titles have a kind of mysterious chemistry with the people who come up with them, you know, just you toss words around in your brain and all of a sudden, Oh wow, that one really speaks to what I'm, what we're trying to create. I kind of liked the contrast of self-help being, um, two words that people have very distinct associations with. It sort of being like a genre of uh, thought that um, is very well-defined. And for what we were trying to create with this record and my ideas lyrically, uh, having some commonalities with that um, as a sort of defined mode of thought, but then uh, other things that are completely counter or... um, Sort of in a in a weird harmony with that idea, and sort of playing off that notion in in a in a way that's sort of uh, remixing it. Huh. I'm not like a I, I don't know the, I'm not an advocate for self hair and sorry self hair self care in a super <laughs> in like the kind of conventional sense that I think it's often like tweeted about or something like that. Um, okay, but I I do feel that the dilution of one's identity is something that can kind of counterintuitively inform a really positive self-identification. And uh, without saying too much more about it, that's for me a large thematic motif of of the album.
1: Well, I appreciate your candor here, Max, and I also appreciate that you might want to leave some things open to interpretation, so I'm not going to press you further on that. Um, We are in a zone. I'm gathering as a musician uh, as, a, as a musician who normally tours live, plays live, and mm-hmm. you alluded to this earlier with the uh, U.S. Girls, I assume yeah. you're kind of grounded at the moment, uh, given all that's going on. Um, yeah. So I guess I wonder, you know, you're on the show, you're talking about this record, but what's sort of next for for Badge or for you? Mm. Uh, do you have plans at the
2: moment? Yeah, I mean, I've been making use of of the boundless free time, Um to kind of wrap up a number of, of projects. So I've got a lot of music that I think is going to be ready to, to come out next year. Um, some of it badge epic ensemble related and some other things which... Uh, some other musical identities which haven't uh, yet popped to the the, the surface of uh, a wider consciousness. Um, okay. So, yeah, just really leaning into... Uh, the ability to produce music right now. Um, And I I think that's where my greatest affinity is. It's even less Mm. with touring than it is with producing new music. So uh, that's where I'm at.
1: Yeah, it's almost, I know I've talked to a few musicians who have sort of said, yeah, my... The lack of income sucks, but I kind of like being at home. I kind of <laughs> yeah. like not having to be uh, on the road on some level. So, yeah, um, yeah, that seems to be common. So if people want to learn more about uh, you or Badge or this record, where would you send them online? I know you don't like the internet. No, I'm just kidding. I know you do. <laughs> uh, is there Where would you like to send people to learn more about uh, your work?
2: Um, google.ca would be a good place to start. And then the the name of the group is Badge B A D G E Epic E P O Q U E Ensemble. Um, if you Google that, I'm sure the resources will come up. We're okay. <laughs> on Spotify. We're <laughs> on Bandcamp. I have a Instagram and a Twitter, and uh, you know the the label Telephone Explosion has a website. Um, so yeah. If you want to find it, it's easily found. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, the label is Telephone Explosion Records. Okay. Now, uh, Max, if we can go out on a song, yeah. a single song, I, I presume, from this uh, new Self-Help album, uh, do you mind picking one for us? And if so, why did you pick the one you're going to tell us about?
2: Sure. Um, let's pick The Sound Where My Head Was. I think that's the time. The timing. Sound that's right the sound where my head
1: was that's a, yes. that's an evocative and vivid vivid title and so in some, in some yeah. many ways uh, why did you choose that one
2: um, I chose that one because it's instrumental and I think exemplifies like the approach to mood and kind of colliding and combining and recombining moods and aesthetics that uh, I think we try to do as a group and because I think it's a song that probably wouldn't get played on the radio or on a podcast otherwise. So I wouldn't mind exposing people to it.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. From their new album, Self Help, uh, this is is Badge Epic Ensemble with the sound where my head was. Max, it's always fun to chat with you, and I appreciate it, and I, I wish you the best luck with
2: everything going forward. Thanks for having me on again, Vish. It's great to chat with you.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Always well, a great time having Max Turnbull on this show. I don't even I've lost track of how many times Max has been on the show to talk about things like uh, his old uh, alter ego there, Slim Twig, or or Darlene Shrug. And now, Badge Epic Ensemble. That was really fun. This time, Max was on the 582nd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and available wherever it is you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple or Google or Spotify or what have you. It's there. However, if you can't find an episode of the show that you've heard about and you're looking for it, and it's just not in any of those places for some reason, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my uh, monthly newsletter, uh, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on the uh, Facebook, or you can follow the show on the Twitter. Uh, you can follow the show directly at Creative, or follow me directly at vishkana. You can also follow me on Instagram at vishkana. I should. I, I've never really mentioned that before, but I take photos sometimes, or I take other people's photos and I put them on my Instagram, so. You like that uh, stuff, go to addbishkana on the Instagram. Also, visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this uh, podcast going. Uh, $6 or more a month gets you uh, access to some exclusive content, but whatever you can afford and are willing to uh, donate to the show, uh, that would be appreciated. I recently asked people on Twitter uh, if they would consider uh, donating, and somehow I lost money. I you usually don't lose. You don't lose money on that deal. Like, you ask people if they'll consider donating and you get more, but I got, went the other way. Always a hazard. You remind people, oh, yeah, I give to that Patreon. I better go in there and get rid of that. But I don't want that. Please don't do that. Go to slash creative control and make a flexible monthly donation today. Thanks again to live at uh, for their support of the show. You can watch beautifully captured concerts by great Canadian artists at that website. Also, thanks to Pizza Dracadero, the bookshelf from Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Grandad's Donuts in Hamilton for their in-kind support for this show. Will I ever get back to any of those places again from here in Edmonton, Alberta? I don't know. I really don't. I hope they still exist when I get back there because I miss them. And you, if you're near any of those places, I would go. They're great. Uh, so do that. Uh, thanks, as always, to my dear pal, Jim Guthrie. He lends me some music for the uh, show, and you can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And that's pretty much it. I want to thank you for listening to this episode with Max. I hope you liked it, and uh, and I hope you'll listen to Self-Help by uh, Badge Epic Ensemble. And I also uh, hope you'll tell your friends to subscribe to this podcast or follow the podcast. Or Don't tell them to subscribe to it. That's too much. Just ask them to listen to it. If they like it, they'll figure out how to subscribe to it or follow it. But still, recommend the show and tell your friends and tell your parents about the show. And i got to go. I'll talk to you later. Bye.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.